Let me add my welcome this morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. We are uh, going to stay in that place of worship and uh, continue with uh, our message today. On uh, We're continuing in the series called Idols, and today I'm uh, dealing with uh, the idol of control. And I'm going to be in um, Daniel 2, 3, and 4 this morning if you want to get your Bibles open there. But I want to start this morning... Uh, with just a personal story uh, on this uh, idol. You know, when I was uh, 14 years old, our ice hockey team got invited to a huge tournament. And uh, in order to go to that tournament, pay the entry fees, and get the equipment I needed, uh, I needed uh, some money. And it turned out that our family did not have any money for this. And I remember being so disappointed and so frustrated by this that I sort of decided immediately I'm going to get a job. Uh, and I, I had a job like three days later at McDonald's. And I'm going to get a job and I'm never going to be in this position again where I'm not going to have what I need to do what I want to do. And it was interesting to me that without really knowing it until maybe 10 years ago, What I actually just did, what I did in that moment at 14 years of age, was to make a vow of self-sufficiency, a vow that I would be in charge of everything on my own, and I wouldn't be looking to others for help. And uh, that uh, vow kind of cut me off from God where I declared that I would be in charge of everything. And um, I believe that vow and that desire for control over my situation uh, would later underpin uh, the sexual addiction that I confessed last week, but it would also underpin workaholism for a long time. And it would also underpin uh, the... uh, the attitude that I would carry much of my life, that I'm like Mr. Captain Invincible. So this control idol is fairly common. And whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, uh, whether that comes in terms of controlling your circumstances, controlling your environment, whether it is controlling uh, your resources, whether it's controlling other people, It manifests itself in a lot of different ways. So I've given you kind of a comprehensive definition here. The control idol is uh, is really an appetite, the appetite to determine my own destiny, my own uh, life. So self-determinism, it's a deep appetite. And we've been talking about appetites in the first section of this series that flows from, and it can come into all kinds of different ways. It can come through rebellion, which is probably, uh, if you uh, look at our national history, kind of where it came from, uh, or if you look at the Garden of Eden, that's where it came from. Uh, Brokenness, in my case, it came from fear, and it can also come from insecurity. It is a manifestation of pride. It's It's one of the ways that pride manifests itself to be the master of our own lives And ultimately, it turns into a quest for power over others, 
over our schedule, our time, over our circumstances. Now, this particular idol runs deep, and it often strengthens the influence of some of the other idols that may be present in our lives. In my case, uh, the sexual addiction and the workaholism. Uh, But it can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. So a great example of this core idol, this core idea of control, is this poem called Invictus. It was written in 1875 by William Henley. William Henley was uh, a teenager when he had to have an amputation of his leg below the knee. And that really drove him to not let that limitation affect his life. Uh, He went to great schools. I became a literary critic and a poet, well-known poet in England during that time. This poem he wrote is uh, entitled Invictus, which uh, from the Latin means unconquered. So you can sort of see the the spirit, I will not be conquered. Uh, And it goes, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that would be pretty faint. You've probably heard of that, at least that last line before. And it turns out that William Henley was a, a brilliant Uh, literary critic, poet, but he was broken when his daughter died at age five. And he himself battled with tuberculosis and was passed away from tuberculosis in his mid-50s. And he never changed his core attitude. Uh, He always stood by this. This, I am the captain of my soul. Again, denying the existence of God, but also... Uh, fighting against the very things that were no longer in his control and really ultimately in denial of that. It's interesting that uh, this guy, his poet, this poem here has inspired all kinds of really awful things in the world. Uh, this was the core inspiration of the Unabomber who blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City This poem was his core inspiration. And so this is a picture, and here you have William Henley uh, denying genetics. Uh, Both parents were literary geniuses, uh, denying uh, his environment, where both parents' resources were significant, and he went to all the best schools, and focusing only on the choices he makes as the central thing that happens. Now, The scriptures tell us we don't know how long we're going to live. The number of days we have is ordained by God. We obviously want to take care of our bodies, and even when we do, we can still die unexpectedly in an accident. Uh, We still uh, don't know how our successes actually happened. There's so many variables. Like, for example, my career at P&G, 22 years uh, it was way more successful, and I made way more money, and I went way more places than I ever dreamed possible. But in the 22 years where I worked for P&G, they opened up operations in almost 100 new countries. So there was a, a need for people from all over the place to uh, be promoted way ahead of schedule to go open these countries. I opened Australia, Japan, launched Tide and Crest in China, 
And so uh, my, my career success was heavily influenced by all kinds of other factors uh, that have no bear, that had nothing to do with my skill. And, and then the last thing the scriptures tell us is we, we have no control over others' decisions. Whether it's a drunk driver or whether it's a, uh, 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 an uncle who is uh, 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 abusive, whatever. We, we don't have choice over those decisions. So this philosophy, which is really common everywhere you look, we are encouraged to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And yet this denies the essence of reality and it denies the essence of the scriptures on what God has ordained. We are not in control. I'm sorry to break it to you if that's a surprise this morning, but we are not in control. You are not in control. So here's a scripture from 1 John chapter 5. Let's just take a look at what's going on around us. He says, John says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Ah, so there's an enemy agency uh, operating against us as we speak. He goes on to say, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. So the enemy is temporarily in control. Jesus has launched his kingdom He is growing his kingdom in preparation for his return. So we are exiles uh, waiting for the exodus out of the mess that we're in. And we are most certainly not in control of these cosmic forces around us. Now here's what this enemy wants to do. We started off in the series in 1 John 2, verse 16 on the right-hand side. He wants to use the lust of the flesh, which is our appetites, the lust of the eyes, which is our desire for approval, uh, for other people to approve of us. And he wants us to, u- to be uh, enslaved by the pride of life, which is our pride in all the things we accomplish, our ambitions. Now, the very same three things uh, are used to test and tempt Jesus. I'm not going to go into that in detail because Jamie's going to cover that next week. The stones into bread jump off the temple and have a daring miracle that everybody goes, wow, this guy's really awesome, or all the kingdoms of the world that he could control without going to the cross, playing into an ambition for a shortcut. Same thing, and and it's exactly the same playbook he used with Eve in the Garden of Eden when God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve looked at that, and she saw that it was good for food, which is the lust of her flesh. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye, which is the lust of her eyes. And she saw that it would make her wise like God, which is the pride of life and and her ambition. So this control idol operates in all of these categories to anchor, to bite, to grab hold of your soul, to make you want to control people, control circumstances, control things around you, and uh, where you have no business being controlled. In other words, it's that desire to be God and to be in charge. So we're going to look at a classic example of this syndrome in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, 
the king of Babylon, the most powerful man on earth at that time. So you can substitute the president of the United States. You can substitute the most powerful people in world history. But God does something with Nebuchadnezzar that is unique and uh, very instructive for us. So Father, as we dive into uh, the story of Nebuchadnezzar this morning, God, help us to see this control idol. Help us to understand its workings. Help us to be set free from that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar uh, takes over and early on takes control of Israel uh, and deports a whole bunch of Jewish people to serve him in his kingdom. Uh, These are mainly young men from the royal court of Israel. One of those is Daniel. Uh, Daniel would probably be 15 years old. He would receive an operation that would make him a eunuch, and then he would be sent over to learn everything the king wanted him to learn before he could serve. And in the very second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, God sends this all-powerful king a scary, shattering dream that causes him to be completely torn apart. And this dream is so amazing and so all-pervasive that the king is literally shaking. He collects all his astrologers and wise men, and he says, you guys have to tell me the dream I had and the interpretation, so I know that the, you're not playing around with it, and I know the interpretation is accurate. Well, king, nobody in the history of kings has ever asked anybody to tell them what they dreamed. You tell us your dream, and we'll tell you what it means. No, 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 no. I know you guys are trying to get... You're all going to be killed if you can't tell me your dream. So Daniel finds out about this, and Daniel's first response is to get on his knees and ask God for revelation. God gives Daniel the revelation, and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are praying for him. And so he gets the revelation. He calls the chief eunuch, and he says, I got the revelation of the king's dream. Take me to the king so all these people don't get killed. So he takes it, takes it to the king and uh, tells him his dream. Check this out. Daniel 2, 31 to 35. Your majesty looked... And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing room floor, a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel stuns Nebuchadnezzar by telling him his dream. And also we begin to see why the king was stunned and disturbed by this dream because it's all these kingdoms. Him being the gold, the next kingdom being the silver, the next kingdom being the bronze, the next kingdom being the iron and the clay, we're all going to be devastated 
by this kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar had never heard about, the kingdom of God. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, is in, in fear of what is coming. And so uh, Daniel explains this to him, and he says, look, here's what's going to happen. All these kings are going to pass. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're not in control. The God of heaven is in control, and you are headed for losing your kingdom. You are headed for all these kingdoms losing their kingdom because the kingdom of God is coming. And Nebuchadnezzar is forced to ask, what, what am I building here? And similarly, you and I are invited to ask, what are we building here? What are we building here? Because all the kingdoms of the earth, no matter if they're, no matter if they're big megachurches, no matter what they are, if they're not about the kingdom of God, they're going to be wiped out. Every nation that is being built, China, Iran, India, United States, all of those kingdoms are going to be wiped out. Wiped out by the kingdom of God. And as we learned in James, Nebuchadnezzar is faced with the fact that he's just a vapor who's going to pass in world history and be no more. And Daniel, in all of this, is really careful not to take any credit because the king is blown away like by this guy and his gifting. And he's saying over and over and over again, it is the God of heaven who revealed this to you. So Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And Daniel says, I didn't reveal it. God revealed it. And so now we're starting to see Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of who the God of heaven is. And it's the same thing that we have to ask ourselves. What is our understanding of God based on? Is God going to be helping those who help themselves, which, by the way, 80% plus of people in church agree with, says that's in the Bible. God doesn't help people who help themselves. God helps people who ask him for help. Right? So here's Nebuchadnezzar's now. He's got to deal with, who is this God? Well, he doesn't flow linearly into a relationship with God. His first instinct isn't, tell me more. His first instinct is to run in fear and build himself a 90-foot statue of gold. All right? That's what he does. It's about the size of that tower on the front of our building. And he puts it in the plain of Dura, and he commands everybody to come, and all the musicians, okay, now you've got to worship King Nebuchadnezzar. Except you've got these three pesky Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are friends of Daniel, and Daniel's actually not in 
uh, this chapter, chapter 3. He's, he's not in there at all. It's these three Jews. And they say, we are not going to worship you no matter what. Because our God is the true God. And even if he doesn't rescue us, we're still not going to worship your God. So he says, well, you are going to be thrown into the furnace of fire then. Because anybody who disobeys me is going to be thrown in the furnace of fire. This is a king who is afraid, who is controlling people to worship him out of fear and insecurity. Going back to that definition I shared at the beginning. And uh, he is not tracking in his relationship to God. So uh, the guys get bound up, get thrown in the fire. The fire, by the way, is so hot that Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers get killed putting the guys in the fire. Then all of a sudden, there's the three guys walking around in the fire, and they're walking with a fourth who's a little visitation by Jesus in the fire. So Nebuchadnezzar is blown away, and he says, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And unlike all the guys who go to man camp, there was no smell of fire on them. So here you have Nebuchadnezzar looking and saying, what is going on here? Who are these guys? Now he calls him the Most High God. He has a chance to talk to the fourth man, but he doesn't. He doesn't ask for the fourth man. He gets the three men to come out. And so now Nebuchadnezzar is starting to turn around. And he continues in his amazement in chapter 3, verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut to pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. He's thinking the fire. He's not thinking forever. He's just thinking the fire. So the king goes beyond his acknowledgement and using the name and begins to realize this God is pretty amazing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to enforce and make sure that these three guys don't get thrown into any more fires. I'm going to get, I'm going to say, hey, anybody who speaks against their God, still their God, it's not his God yet, still their God uh, is going to be destroyed. Now, by this point, Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to see, we're thinking, wow, he's going to flip. He's going to change. But in the next chapter, we realize that he actually continues on his old tricks. He continues. Now, at the beginning of chapter 4, we, we, get, a, we get some glimpse that th- things are changing. In the beginning of chapter 4, he's writing a letter 
So we realize chapter 4 is going to be a story of what happened. Uh, But he's humbled by the divine power again because God gives him another dream. This dream is equally scary. It's the dream of a big tree which represents, he thinks, probably his kingdom, all the greatness of it, the birds living in it, the animals living under it, lots of fruit being produced. And in the dream, the tree is lopped off. But there's a a band of iron left around the tree. So he's, what is this? So again, God is moving in, chasing after this guy, and he's, he's got to frighten him again with another dream. Calls Daniel, and Daniel tells him what the dream means in chapter 4, verse 25. You will be driven away from people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, or seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Now, Daniel tells him this dream interpretation somewhat reluctantly because he realizes this is bad news for the king. Like this king's had one dream interpreted, one miracle, the furnace miracle. He's still oppressing people. He's still got the same mentality that he had all along here. And he is uh, wicked. And Daniel tells him, you're wicked, dude. Now, up until this point, Daniel has not campaigned for the king to change his wickedness. He's, He's in the middle of this. And he's allowing God to work on this guy. So the king, though, kept doing what the king did. He kept building monuments to himself. This is a picture of uh, one of the monuments uh, that he built. This is an artist's renditioning, uh, a rendition of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world uh, at this time, circa 500 B.C., And uh, this is part of what he had built, a palace complex, uh, all these artificial terraces with uh, big, huge trees planted on them. So here's what we see. The king is still walking around in the illusion of control, even after the dream that says you're going to get lopped off, you're going to spend seven years like a wild animal, and then when you acknowledge that heaven rules, you'll come back into your kingdom. He's still walking around in the illusion of control. So we read in Daniel 4, 28 and following, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, that's 12 months after the dream, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, admiring his handiwork, he says this, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. 
Proverbs 29.1 says, The man who can continually refuses correction will suddenly be broken. And this is what happens. God's patience runs out. Nebuchadnezzar is broken. And he's off to live as a wild animal for seven years. Out of his mind. And then he writes in chapter 4, 34 and following, At the end of that time, seven years later, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the point at which Nebuchadnezzar releases control. This is the point at which Nebuchadnezzar yields to the Spirit of God, to the Father, This is the point at which Nebuchadnezzar bends the knee and realizes, I'm not who I thought I was. And he, in that, becomes even greater than he was before because now he actually is a king who understands where his kingship comes from and who understands who the real king is. And this is is such a powerful story. I don't have time to go into the next chapter in detail, but... Nebuchadnezzar's son actually ends up throwing a banquet, takes the goblets out of the temple in Jerusalem and starts toasting the gods of Babylon. And a hand comes in on the wall above his throne and starts writing. And this is the hand of God writing. And it says, hey, you've been placed on the scales and you've been found wanting. And within... A short period of time, Daniel comes in, interprets the dream, interprets what's going on, and says, you saw your dad. You saw what happened to your dad, and you didn't learn from it. So you're going to die. And he dies. So the kingdom of Babylon, the gold part of the statue, gets wiped out, and the next king is a Mede from Media, a guy named Darius. So this guy dies. Now this, if nothing else, this whole story is, is actually a clinic in parenting. Because as we deal with our control idols, we will be brought to the place where we recognize that some of the control we exert is not of the Lord. And we actually need to repent to our children um, for either blasting them with uh, anger and temper or uh, being uh, giving them one set of rules and, and living by another or whatever the issues are of controlling them with money, of controlling them uh, in various other ways, their grades, turning them into almost um, you know, training dogs, just jumping up and down. Whatever that direction We have to look around and say, you know what? It is crucial for us to show our kids the parts of our lives that are not aligned with God and to give up that illusion that we're perfect and to 
have households where God is in charge, not us, where we're all under the authority of God. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, doesn't appear to have done that. So this whole story is a call to humility. It's a call to relinquish control. And we look at the other character throughout this whole story, Daniel. 15 years of age, plucked out of his home, no chance of having kids or being married, serving kings. Turns out for 60 years. Plus, he serves Nebuchadnezzar, his son, King Darius, and King Cyrus. So he's over there. He has no life of his own. His homeland is kaput. He is literally alone. And what he has going for him is his walk with God. And he's walking in humility. He's not in control. He's actually a billboard for my God is so good. I don't, my God is so great. My God is so powerful. I don't have to be in charge. My God is so great. I don't have to look like the smartest guy in the room all the time. My God is so great that I don't have to have every minute of my children's behavior on videotape to trust that he is also raising them up as we speak. And Daniel is a picture of Jesus who also got taken out of his comfortable spot in heaven, who came and was born as a baby, completely vulnerable, completely out of control, trusting in all of the things that he would have to trust in to be raised up by his parents, and then to yield control of his life uh, to head toward the cross. And to do that for you and for me. He is a picture of what it looks like to yield completely to the Father, to yield completely to the Holy Spirit, to yield completely to the way of Christ. And so... Daniel and Jesus, they're walking humbly with their God. And this is done in the power of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the only kind of control God wants us to have, self-control. The only kind of control he wants us to have is self-control. Against these things, there's no law, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other, abandoning the life of control. So, coming back to where we were in the five-step process for handling an idol last week, um, we are continuing to anticipate the end result We're accepting the current reality and we're assessing the control idol. What part of your life are you experiencing anxiety, fear, insecurity, anger when things are pushed a little bit? These are probably hinting at the things that uh, you may be trying to control. Uh, I mentioned earlier workaholism. Well, this is sort of God's made a lot of progress on that over the years, but still, where I feel it is in my schedule. When I feel it, when someone walks into my office, uh, 
at uh, 5.50 for prayer. And uh, I've just hung up from Marianne and saying, I'm going to be home for dinner in about 15 minutes. Um, and I feel it in my schedule. And I feel frustration rising when uh, that schedule is, gets blown apart. So this recent New Year's Day, we were praying in the morning at the 24 hours of prayer and ended up through uh, basically just the flow of the day, ended up all day at uh, my son's house with all my grandkids. And I had all kinds of stuff that I needed to read uh, for, that I had planned to do on that afternoon. And it just, it's, it's in there. It's just not voluntary. I'm just like, hey, I'm not, I'm not happy about being out of control on this stuff. I got this to do, this to do, this to do. Well, we go home. We had a great day. I, I wasn't as present as I could have been, but I, I knew what was going on, and I, I started responding to it. The next day, three cancellations and plenty of time to get done when I need to get done. And I just, I just remember getting down on my knees and writing in my journal, God, I relinquish my schedule to you because you know better. But again... It is a constant battle that I have to keep taking into repentance. So looking at our gospel chart, how are we going to deal with this idol of control? What does it look like? You know, we talked about Eve. She was planted in God's kingdom. She was told not to eat from the tree. She succumbed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Her sin... uh, And Adam's passivity brought us into brokenness, and we've been there ever since. And control is just one of those ways we try to manage our brokenness. We try to manage our lack of control over other things. It can look like um, it can look like a wife trying to control her husband's driving. It, It can look like a mom, okay, who's pouring into her kids. But the stress level is so high, the performance expectation is so high, the kids are miserable. And and, and it's under the auspices of good motherhood. But it really is about performance. It's about her having control over the outcome. Or that person in your family who loves to control information, loves to let three people know who's pregnant and when they're due, but... The other people don't know. And then they find out through the back door. They love that. They love controlling information. It's the way they can control their family. Do you have one of those? I got one. Anybody got one of those? I got one of those. Um, How about using the Bible as a weapon and exercising control that way? Or one of the guys I was able to disciple uh, many years ago, he seduced women as a conquest. And then when he got done with them, he would be done with them. Well, God draws him into the kingdom. And guess what? He is now controlling guys that he's discipling. Just the way he was controlling the women before. It kind of sticks to you. You've got to be aware of it. Or passive people who may not look like they're in control, but they're 
always sowing discord. And they're uh, riling up. Or that, that introvert who uses prophecy as a way to control people. So-and-so is going to be the next so-and-so. You need to do that. Um, or money. We use money to control. I, I had a good friend who loved Auburn University. He went to Auburn, of course. And he would always just tell his kids, you know, you can go to whatever college you want, but my money is going to Auburn. That's control. That's control. Well-meaning maybe, but control. So we resent and rebel against that. So what do we do about it? Well, we recognize that that is a do-loop that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We repent of our tendency to want to control things, and we believe that God is in control, that Jesus is good, that God is great, he can overcome any situation, and we come to the gospel with the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to give us the route back to the kingdom of God where we can recover and pursue. So we just turn it over. So that's what we're going to do as we head into communion. You, worship team, you guys can come on up. We're going to lay it down. We're going to repent, leave it behind. And then when you're ready, come up and have the body and blood of Jesus Christ where you can exchange, you can exchange the illusion of control for the truth of God's grace. Where you can exchange the unhealthy ways you try to manage your environment and other people and receive the way of freedom. The way that says, let the Spirit lead, let Jesus lead. And if you need prayer on anything, come up to the prayer teams and we'll give you prayer. But let me just say one thing. Repenting is not enough. Repenting is great and is a key first step. But we've got to learn to keep our eye on the kingdom, our eye on Jesus. The counterfeit currency experts will tell you to become really good at spotting fakes. Don't spend your time studying fakes. Spend your time studying the original. Because you will deeply know and see and understand that thing, and you will spot a fake from a mile away. It's the same with Jesus. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's, that's who's in control. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He will bring you to glory. Stay focused on Jesus. So as we come to communion, let me just remind us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he knew what was coming, Jesus asked the Father three times, is there another way of doing this? Is there any way this can pass from me? And there was no other way because Jesus is the way. So he had to go, and he was sweating blood. This was not like something he just took in stride. He was wrestling with control. And he released, he relinquished control. He went to the cross for you and me. 
And because he did that, we also can relinquish control. So when you take the body and the blood of Christ, you know, confess the control and receive the control of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of Nebuchadnezzar, of Daniel, and of the Lord Jesus. And now, Lord, we ask that you would fill us in this time. And uh, Lord, change us any way you want. In Jesus' name, amen. The communion table is open. Prayer teams, you can come up.